piece of paper that makes all the difference. How living together before marriage diminishes life after the vows. And this is part two. Uh, the others are the other is online and uh, video and notes and all of all of that stuff. Interesting topic tonight: the marriage covenant, God's defense against sexism. The marriage covenant, God's defense against sexism. I want to start this way. There are certain biblical truths that not only have to be known and understood, but they have to, once you know them, you have to place them in the right order for maximum fruitfulness. Our brother... Klaus Alberg passed away, went to be with Jesus. And he uh, makes these little wooden puzzles, made these little wooden puzzles. He gave me several of them. I talked about it at, at the funeral. And the key to assembling the pieces is there are certain pieces that you have to put together first. If you, if you, don't, if you don't do them in the right order, they won't work. Or here's another illustration. Pretend you, have a, pretend you have a box, say, the size of this pulpit. Say a plexiglass box, but it's all sealed in and open on the top. So you can put things in it from the top, all right? I could take small bowling balls, for example. And I could stack them up and fill... Let's say the top came to here. I could just picture them all stacked up. You can see them. Maybe rows of three and then three more and then three more and pile them up. And they'll fit there. Then I could take little ball bearings, maybe from a piece of machinery, little metal ball bearings, about that big. And I could probably take a bucket of them. And if I poured it in from the top, it would, there's big gaps between those bowling balls, and the little ball bearings would just filter down, filter down, filter down, until I filled it up. Then I could take buckshot, those tiny little pellets, and I could take a container of that and I could pour it in there and they would sift down between, sift down between until I filled it up. Then I could take sand, that real fine, coarse sand like you find on nice beaches. And I could take a pail of that and I could pour it in and it would sift down and fill all the cracks. And after that, I'll bet you, I could take a gallon or two of water and I could pour that in until everything was just absolutely full to the top. Now, here's my question. Could I put all those things in that plexiglass box if I did it in the exact reverse order? Would they all fit? Not a chance, right? Not a chance. That's the kind of idea I want to start with, and then I hope to, as we work through it, show you how it relates to this topic. There are certain truths that you have to know, and you have to apply to your life in a certain order. They're not more truth, less truth, not that, it's all true, 
but it works, it's meant to work a certain way in your life. Take the really basic um, demand, comes to all of us as we follow Jesus, the demand for our obedience. You couldn't overstate the importance of it. Something's happened in modern Christianity where we're really good at taking the cross and applying it to the beginning of our Christian life, conversion, and we apply it less to the sustaining of our Christian life. So grace comes and forgives us at the beginning and we're saved. But there's far less emphasis on the way grace empowers obedience as we move on and walk with the same, the same grace. It doesn't just start the Christian life. It, it empowers obedience and devotion and service to the Lord. So in spite of the modern attempt to separate those two things, I'm a Christian and I just kind of live the way I like, the New Testament really won't, really won't let you do that. There's just no such thing as a non-obedient Christian in the New Testament. But the life of obedience will be hard won. It will be grudgingly performed until another truth takes hold in my mind before the idea that I have to obey my Lord, which is true. But there's something else I have to understand first. Or I won't, I'll obey the Lord with a, a bowing, uh, somewhat resentful, okay, 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 I'm a Christian, I'll do it, attitude. Rather than a, a thankful, praise-filled, loving obedience, even when God's summons, God's call goes somewhat against the grain of what I was thinking at the moment, but I'll still trust and submit, and there'll be an element of joyfulness, even if I don't understand it all. As long as I've sorted out something before I sorted out my need to obey the Lord. And what you need to sort out before you sort out your obedience to the Lord is, why does he require obedience? Why does God command my life, your life. Why, why does he come and just summon us? If you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself. I need to sort that out first, or I might come to just joylessly resent obedience even while I offer it. Here I must constantly retell myself about God's commanding approach to my life. And the way I see it, and the way I think all Christians must see it, first, before they obey, is everything Father God commands is ultimately for my good. All right? I didn't say everything Father God commands feels pleasant at the moment. So there's, I, I, I understand the element of faith here. I'm talking about restating 
a biblical principle, even if I can't work out all the details of it all the time, that everything God commands for my life is ultimately for my good. If I had the understanding God has of my whole life, I would see the goodness in everything he commands. Everything he commands is not for my comfort, I didn't say that, but is lovingly for my ultimate good. We all, us right here, to varying degrees, we share a common problem. It's from the fall and the effects of original sin, and it will not be totally gone until Jesus comes again. We work against this. And what we share in common, the problem is we don't, we don't, always hear God's commands the way he speaks his commands. This spiritual hearing problem is a residue, a hangover from the fall. So that, so that frequently the commands of divine love feel freedom diminishing, they feel restrictive, and they feel unreasonable the way the way when I was 15, the way my curfew felt when I had to be in at a certain time and there was nothing reasonable about it. And that's the way, that's the way we, if we're not careful, we will hear God's commands as a, a divine flexing of muscle. I'm God and you're going to do what I say. And for this reason, we should never just sort of waddle into raw-willed obedience, mindless obedience. Until Jesus comes again, I must constantly remind myself why Father God commands. Expressing his commanding will, well, that's what our creator God does. He's never going to stop doing this. And that divine will can be quickly questioned and evasions to obedience can be rationalized unless I constantly hear Father God's hear Father God's motives not just his commands now that's a pretty long introduction to say this the sexual blindness of our culture regarding the growing preference to cohabitation over marriage is, is manifested in many ways and a lot of culturally snappy Christians buy into it. But they're walking away from, they're walking away from the protective, commanding love of God. All right? And... When people walk away from the protective, commanding love of God regarding marriage and settle for cohabitation for whatever reasons they summon, the primary, the primary misunderstanding that causes them to think that way, the primary misunderstanding that causes even Christian couples to venture into cohabitation over marriage is, is this... The error is this. 
Sexual intercourse is not the covenant sign of love in the scriptures. Sexual intercourse is the covenant sign of marriage. Every once in a while we'll watch something on TV and and it'll be kind of in a more modern setting and there'll be a mom-daughter conversation and, you know, the daughter's reaching that age where her future is getting iffy and what kind of moral choices she's going to make and the mom sits down and, and they think, the producers think, this is the moral high road where the mom will say something like this in a, in a uh, Gilmore Girls kind of way. You know, don't you, don't, you, don't you sleep with somebody until you're sure that they're the one and you really love them. And the implication is that having sex with someone is the sign of love. And it never is in the New Testament. It never is in the Bible. Having sex with someone is the covenant sign of marriage. You don't prove love by sexual intercourse. You, you prove marriage. You prove covenant in marriage. And that divine law, that boundary-defining command is, like every other divine law, given as a manifestation of God's care, God's protection, and God's love. My main point of concern, and we're well into it now, My main point of concern now is to show the mountain of evidence that Father God's divine marriage command, like all of Father God's commands, is rooted in love, not restriction. And one of the marriage covenant's most loving rewards is this. It is the greatest protection against sexism, particularly... It is a protection and a blessing for women. I want to show you why I say that. Let me say one more thing here. A person coming without any understanding of the New Testament, the teaching of the Bible, and and a walk of obedience before the Lord, if you said that the covenant of marriage is God's protection against sexism they would be extremely resentful that just because they are cohabiting instead of marrying, that they are in any way sexist. Like, they would resent hearing that. And they would deny it. But what I want to show you next is there's something that happens with sin, with all sin. Sin always comes in bunches. You end up darkened in more than just one area of your mind. Or or let me put it this way. Sin always spreads beyond the initial point of rebellion. It's like putting deadly chemicals into a stream. It doesn't affect just the output pipe where those chemicals are coming out. It affects everything that flows down the stream. So sin always spreads beyond the initial point of rebellion. I want to try and show you how this works in some scriptural examples. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Is that in your notes? Read it out loud with me, would you? Now this I say and testify in the Lord... 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The key phrases are, look at them with your index finger, darkened in their understanding, 18, and then have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, 19. Now, when I read that, I say to myself, but Paul, surely not each of these darkened individuals, not every one of them commits every single sin imaginable. That can't be, 19. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity? What can that mean? It means that with a darkened understanding, 18, it means with a darkened understanding, there is nothing to prevent or protect the life, even from sins they might still regard as morally offensive, and can't imagine themselves going there. I said couples who cohabit probably don't mentally embrace sexism. They're probably offended by it. But cohabitation tends towards sexism nonetheless. Now let me give you another example. Take, take the sin of abortion. Abortion is getting to be a very awkward fight for feminists. Feminists used to be able to simply stand up and shout for a woman's right to choose. But that's getting complicated. It's becoming complicated because with the passing of time and with more and more and more abortions globally, certain facts start to bubble up to the surface. These aren't Christian facts. These are just absolute statistics. See... The vast majority of babies killed in the womb in our hemisphere are black. The vast majority. And the vast majority of babies killed globally are girls. And I mean the vast majority. It's astronomical, the majority. And so... The feminist must choose her argument very carefully because in order to be in favor of a woman's right to choose, she must also be in favor of racism and sexism. And that's because there is no stopping off place for a darkened understanding. When you snub God's creative authority in one area, you reap results of that disobedience in many other areas. You end up living with you end up living with a moral darkness you don't even agree with. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Now on the positive side, 
honoring God with obedience in one area brings protection into your life in far more than just that one area. And to the point of tonight's teaching, honoring the covenant of marriage is also God's protection against sexism. And really quickly now, here's how it works. Point number one. Just three points in the fast. Statistically, men and women are not equal in the expectations they bring into the cohabiting relationship. So imagine this following scenario. Take thousands of cohabiting couples, bring them into an interview setting. You divide couples up, putting all the women in one area and all the men in another. Tell each one you want to talk to them about the future of their relationship with their partner. Ask each man and each woman to write down where they see their relationship going in the next three years. All right? You do that with all the men in one room and all the women in the other. Then you bring them all together. You put them back into couples. And you compare the answers that they wrote down when they were alone. How similar do you think the answers they gave in private will be regarding the future of their relationship when they compare them? You don't have to guess. This has been done. This has been done scores of times with thousands and thousands of cohabiting couples. Not at, you know, a Billy Graham seminar, just in sociology departments in universities all over North America. Now, which of these conclusions do you think researchers found to be true? A, cohabiting men and women at largely the same percentages, both hoped to move their relationship into marriage as soon as possible. One option. B, cohabiting men and women felt they were just having fun with their relationship and felt no need to rush into marriage, both men and women. C, cohabiting men and women had very different views on where they thought their relationship was going. Which do you think is true? Overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly. C, Over and over again, across all racial, ethnic, economic, and educational backgrounds. Figuring those things in, okay, so your results aren't skewed. The answer is statistically overwhelmingly C. If you're a woman, you need to know which is the correct answer because in the vast majority of cases, it was the woman who saw the relationship as preparation for marriage and the man who did not. Here's the conclusion of researchers as they study this data. Galena K. Rhodes and Scott M. Stanley and Howard J. Markman in, quotes, this is the title, a longitudinal investigation of commitment dynamics in cohabiting relationships. That's that's not the conclusion, that's just the title. They say the following, quote, in these relationships, women may be at a disadvantage in terms of relational power because they are the ones that are more committed. Particularly if they are unaware of the difference in commitment, women may wind up making more sacrifices for their relationships than their partners, and these unrequited sacrifices could be detrimental if the relationship ends. Remember, this is not Christian research. Cohabitation is a sexist setup right from the start. Point number two. 
Statistically, men and women are not equal in safety in the cohabiting relationship. Family Violence Research Program at the University of New Hampshire, the leading American institution studying domestic violence, finds that all other factors being equal, quote, cohabitors are much more violent than marrieds. Specifically, the overall rate of violence for cohabiting couples is twice as high as for married couples, and the rate for severe violence, where, say, hospitalization would be required, is five times higher. Instances of violence and abuse rated highest in cohabiting relationships at 48%, while the national average for acts of violence in marriage is 19%. That's still disgusting, but it is much lower. And the important point to note is these rates hold true even when taking into account education, age, occupation, and income. In other words, cohabitation by itself is the factor contributing to the violence, not some other factor. One other point. These numbers don't show that men are more violent than women in cohabiting, cohabiting relationships. The ratio of violence splits evenly. It's about 50% between both men and women in cohabiting relationships. However, women suffer more in these violent encounters due to lack of size and physical strength. They come out on the short end of the deal the vast majority of occasions. And they frequently feel fearful and more threatened to leave the relationship. It's sexist. Point number three. Statistically, men and women are not equal in the faithful love committed in the cohabiting relationship. I talked a bit last week about the highly touted national sex survey. Reveals this, that live-in boyfriends are four times more likely to have cheated on their partner in the past 12 months than a married man. And even more important, listen to this. This non-Christian survey concluded that cohabitation, quotes, cohabitation before marriage is still associated with reduced sexual exclusivity after marriage. You train people in unfaithfulness in a cohabiting relationship, and that training carries over even after marriage vows are said. You, 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 you can't learn commitment in an uncommitted relationship. And that relational inertia carries over into the marriage. You bring all the baggage from the cohabiting relationship into the marriage relationship. I'm not saying there's not one happy cohabiting relationship. I'm talking about the average of the statistics, that most of the time, that is the way it will work out. A study published in the Journal of Marriage and Family reveals, not surprisingly, that cohabitors, quotes, more closely resemble singles than married people in extra-relational sexual liaisons. And they also concluded that, quotes, the relational clarity and commitment of marriage serve to protect against infidelity. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing where, given enough time, just given enough time, all the researchers in the world 
start to find out what our Creator established at the beginning. God always knows what He's talking about. He always has been and He always will be way ahead of the sociology departments and the psychology departments and the philosophy departments. He, re he reveals out of His deepest wisdom and remember, remember, everything He commands he commands out of love. Even at the point of our lives when the commands feel restrictive, like the curfew for the 15-year-old going out on a date, even when the commandment feels restrictive, it's based on the wisdom and love of someone who knows what's best for our lives. I don't know everyone in this room. I know most of you. But if you're here and the thought is entering your mind that somehow, you know, that somehow, um, you know, marriage is fine for some traditional type people, but the world is changing and our lifestyles are changing and my partner and I, we're, we're Christians and we do think that eventually we're going to get married and we're going to be faithful to each other and it's just all sorts of practical reasons why we need to move in together. I'd be the crummiest pastor in the world if I didn't tell you that you're, you're going to break your soul in that relationship. And you're going to lose something precious. I have two studies left. The first two, I admit, were more statistical. I wanted to paint a picture and show a background. The next two will be about marriage vows and weddings and, and a biblical definition of sin and how it affects our lives and, when, and we'll be deeply entrenched in the word and the teaching of the scriptures. One of the things I want to talk about is, is as weddings and receptions become bigger and bigger and bigger productions in our worldly minds. That the most important thing you can offer your partner is to be a bride or a groom and to walk down this aisle, and I mean this in, in the nicest way, it's to walk down this aisle and to offer your partner your virginity. Is precious. Don't let anyone take that from you. If that's already happened in your life, there is God's grace, and I'm going to talk about that. When you can't walk down the aisle and offer your spouse your virginity. But I'm talking now to people who are just thinking about making a decision that you're, you're throwing away God's very best. And don't do it. Don't do it. 